Hey there, it's Dr. Nazanin Mo'oli, and I want to chat with you about a key ingredient for a fabulous date night, feeling sexy. And come on, let's be real. What you wear plays a big part in how you rock that confidence. That's why I'm thrilled to introduce you to Quince. Quince brings you premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts starting at just $30, along with washable silk tops, 40-carat gold jewelry, and more. And guess what? All of their goodies are priced 50 to 80% lower than similar brands. By teaming up directly with top factories, Quince skipped the middleman and hands us the saving. Plus, they stick to factories with safe, ethical practices and top-notch fabrics and finishes. How awesome is that? Picking from Quince's website was tough because they have a ton of fabulous choices. I ended up going for their 100% washable silk sleep dress in champagne. And let me tell you, my husband was floored. He's convinced whoever rocks this is in for a blast. I'm going to record some content on that dress so you can see how fabulous is that dress. Elevate your date night style with Quince. Pop over to quince.com slash sexology for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash sexology to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash sexology. Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. I hope you're having a great week. Like most of you guys these days, I hear lots of news around women and some men coming forward with with the allegation around sexual harassment, sexual violence that happened to them many years ago. And uh, we had a few episodes that we talked about number of different behaviors that people are experienced in the workplace and also in the relationships that they had that was unwanted. And as some of you might know, that Me Too movement, named as the person of the year for Time magazine in 2017, and although I'm very excited about people kind of overcoming this culture of silence when it comes to sexual assault, it made me wonder that how as a society, uh, we are sexual violence is getting processed, negotiated, and portrayed in media. And uh, how throughout the years, there was this narrative in popular culture around these things. That's why I invited a professor and researcher to come and talk to us about this topic. Our guest today is Dr. Nikki Phillips. Nikki Phillips is an associate professor of criminal justice at San Francis College, Brooklyn, New York, where she teaches courses that include criminology, criminal justice, crime and media, and victimology. She's the director of the Center for Crime and Popular Culture, serving scholars and students 
interested in issues pertaining to the intersection of crime, social control, and popular culture. Her research interests include media and crime, crime and popular culture, and sexual violence. She is the author of Beyond Blurred Line, Lines, Rape Culture in Popular Media, and co-author of Comic Book Crime, Truth, Justice, and the American Way. Here's my conversation with Dr. Nikki Phillips. Welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited and thrilled to have Dr. Nikki Phillips join us today. Nikki, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. I am so excited to have you in our show because as I was just sharing with you before I started recording that this is a topic, the sexual assault and rape culture in media is a topic that's very relevant these days. And I'm excited to have an um, expert and author who did research in this area to join us today. Thank you. So I, as I shared with you, I loved your book. I felt it was very relevant and I shared that with our listeners as well. And I know you talk about rape culture in the book. So I wanted to start with asking you about how do you conceptualize the rape culture? Well, this is an interesting concept because it really originated from 1970s radical feminist. And there's a lot of ambiguity to the term. So it's been contested a lot. It's generally, I think, a a very simple definition in general. It's used to describe how violence against women has been normalized in our society through uh, a process of linking sexuality to violent aggression. So I think that's probably the easiest way to understand it, although there's a lot going on with the concept. So it's really referring to ways that gender depression contributes to the perpetuation of rape myths, victim blaming, permissive attitudes towards sexual violence, and so forth. In the book, I talk about some aspects of rape culture that feminists in the 1970s talked about that were relevant. So they emphasize things like um, just because rape is against the law doesn't mean that we don't implicitly condone or explicitly encourage it. Um, There was a focus on patriarchy and how oppressive behaviors and attitudes play a dominant role in encouraging sexual violence and the victim blaming and the perpetuation of rape myths. There was a focus on how sexual violence rests on a continuum. So it could be anything from verbal comments and catcalling, what we would now call microaggressions to groping to rape, right? So there's a continuum of behaviors, not all of which are are criminal, There was a recognition of the mistreatment of women who come forward, both just in terms of the general public and treatment by law enforcement in the criminal justice system, a focus on uh, low rates of reporting, arrest and conviction. And then there was a focus on sort of calling out popular culture for ways that um, there were frequent um, efforts to objectify women and the conflation of sexuality and violence. So all of these things are part of what we consider rape culture. <laughs> so it's kind of a of a broad concept, I think. And it really settled in academia for many years and it people used it a lot. And it but it didn't I trace in the book how it didn't really explode into popular discourse and the public imagination until just a few years ago. So that's what I focused on in the book is that's how the public became 
interested in using this term and how it came to represent a variety of, of attitudes and behaviors. And I loved when you talked about how sexual assault is in a continuum because, yes, most people kind of been thinking about assault, kind of thinking about a stranger raping uh, this, like, helpless young woman. So that that's what they think, okay, that's not okay. But as you said, there are a range of things. And I remember even from, I was thinking for preparation for this interview, I was thinking about how in different, even romantic comedies, the behaviors that is kind of portrayed as funny is like a the guy stalking the woman or doing range of things that that would be sexual assault or harassment and minimum that just gets normalized. Yeah, it's just considered funny or, you know, accepted behavior to just keep on and on and on in pursuit, <laughs> even though it may not be uh, reciprocal. Right, and it yeah. desensitizes people <laughs> yeah, and like, sure. kind of like minimize those behaviors. So, and it's interesting that I get, when I hear rape culture, and I'm going to talk about it with other people, I sometimes I get this like negative reaction. Yes. Do you experience that? I found in the research that the concept is very contested. I think one of the reasons is because it's so broad. So it's used in a couple of different ways. It is both an explanatory framework and it's used descriptively, right? So theoretically, it's really positing an explanation, right? So it's saying that sexual violence operates on this continuum, normative heterosexual behaviors that are culturally conditioned as aggressive. So it's really implicating patriarchy here and gendered inequalities that reinforce stereotypes, like the idea of men being sexually insatiable, women being passive and, and things like that, and how that informs these stereotypes, right? Inform social scripts that impact our understandings and reactions to sexual violence. So that's one component of the concept. The other is that it's used descriptively. So it's been used to make collective sense of all these variety of experiences. And when it really gained traction among the public was among feminist-inspired writers on, on websites. And they would address, they would critique, for example, ways that sexual violence is portrayed in popular culture, like the example that you gave, or highlight consequences of online gendered harassment, or bring attention to victim blaming, and so forth. So it was kind of used as a catch-all for all of these types of behaviors. So I think in both ways, there was a reaction to using this concept. So as much as I talk about in the book how the concept of rape culture was raising awareness about these issues in a variety of domains, in each instance, there was a reaction to the use of the concept. And it was considered a feminist overreaction or hysteria or a moral panic. So I did see that kind of resistance, both using it as an explanatory framework and as a and as a descriptor as well. Right. And you talked about how in 1970s, like, like it was originated, this concept. And recently, and like at least in past couple of years, we saw how things evolve. So based on your research and experience, how this concept evolved, for example, in the like last decade? Well, what I saw was there was very little usage of the concept of rape culture in mainstream media in terms of like newspapers until around the end of 2012. And then it exploded. So I looked at part of my study was looking at headlines in newspapers and magazines um, that used rape culture. 
And it really did explode around the end of 2012 into 2013 and 2014. And I tied that to what I thought were three significant events that encapsulated our understanding of rape culture and that got a lot of media coverage here in the United States. So one of them was the Steubenville, Ohio sexual assault case that involved discussion and discourse around teen behavior, around the use of social media, around intoxication and sexual assault, around sports and entitlement, like a variety of issues around teen behavior and rape and sexual assault domestically and behavior among young people. So it prompted a lot of conversation around that. Around the same time, there was a case, a gang rape case in New Delhi, India, that got a lot of coverage And it got a lot of international coverage. And domestically, we talked about that in the broader context of violence against women. So we had sort of a domestic framework that was emerging and this sort of domestic take on an international incident that was occurring. And then we had a lot of discourse around popular culture. So I talk in the book about how narratives and images of sexual violence were discussed, particularly around the release of the song um, Beyond Blurred the song um, Blurred Lines by Robin Thicke. But at any rate, it was all of these characteristics. So teen behavior, pop culture, violence against women, intoxication, social media, right? All of this together that I think prompted this interest in, in the concept around that time. Once I noticed that, I decided to look at different domains where there was a lot of discourse. So one was uh, in television and films where I looked at a discourse around representations of sexual violence. I looked at what I called geek spaces, which were the video gaming industry and comic book culture. And then I looked at the discourse around campus sexual assault. So I think that collectively we can see how this concept unfolded within these domains. Right. And why? I mean, there are different kind of way of looking at it, but like, I feel like it's certainly dangerous. Do you share that perspective? And why do you think if that's the case, the rape culture is dangerous? Well, I think what we're seeing more recently with the Me Too movement that has gained a lot of traction is that women are more likely to come forward and to be vocal about their experiences and not be immediately dismissed out of hand, which is definitely a positive movement. But I think it's also illustrating that we have two simultaneous things going on at the same time. So we have this condemnation of sexual harassment and sexual assault And we also see that we have a cultural condoning that's still happening. So we have, for example, we have the resignation of Al Franken just recently. We have the reactions to Weinstein. We have this sort of severe cultural condemnation on the one hand. And then on the other hand, we have condoning. So we have Trump, who's still in the White House, who has been accused of uh, sexual misconduct. And we have Roy Moore, who's running in the Senate race in Alabama, who's been accused of sexual misconduct. So we it, this paradox is still continuing. So in that it, is it dangerous that 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 we're still in a culture that can condone and and sort of reinforce the notion that sometimes there's not justice for victims and sometimes it eludes us, right? I don't know if I would use the word dangerous, but I would definitely recognize that we have not figured this out yet. 
that we haven't solved the problem for sure. Right. And as a psychologist, it's just so challenging for me to see this duality that you're talking about. Like, you know, I I know, like, at least I work with women. Many of my female friends were subject of sexual assault, sexual abuse, certainly sexual harassment. And so it's not, I'm sure it's a, it is a widespread concept. But on the other hand, I really don't get it why people can compartmentalize that when they're voting when kind of like choosing their candidates. So that's a part that's just like, I, as a per, as a female, just cannot make sense of that. Right. It's It does seem, I do think it seems to me like selective condemnation. Right. And that, that seems to be occurring currently because it is wrapped up in politics and explicitly so now in the in terms of the allegations made against members of Congress and so forth. It's just explicitly political in ways that it wasn't before. So I think that we see this contradiction a little more starkly maybe than we did before. One thing that I think that's important about this Me Too movement or moment that we're having is that points out that in terms of like, you had asked me a question about reaction to the concept of rape culture, like is there resistance to this concept and so forth. And sometimes the resistance is people don't want to use it because uh, relatively speaking, rates of rape um, are, are fairly low in terms of measuring them historically in the United States, right? According to official statistics. But what I think the Me Too revelations reveal is that when people give their stories, right, they tell their narratives, it's not really necessarily about rape, right? It's about this continuum, sexual misconduct, behaviors that are some inappropriate and some rise to the level of criminality. But what it's showing is that it serves to marginalize women from public spaces. So it's socially exclusionary practice. And I think that that's one of the important things that this women coming out and speaking now is telling us that it's not necessarily just about Um, harm because of the actual act that occurs, like the emotional and physical harm that we generally associate with sexual violence, but it's also the material conditions, these the ability to participate in a workforce, the ability to negotiate socially, right, without being excluded or feeling like you don't have a place there. So I think that that's one of the things that I find interesting about this movement and hopefully important when we think about how we can solve these problems moving forward. Right. And as, as I'm sure you are aware of, and you read more probably more than me on the topic, is just like how is challenging is for women in workforce, even right now in 2017, that just like we the wages are less, we are, there's just so much more challenging. And on top of that, many women feel less than because of this ongoing harassment, sexual harassment at work. It's just like one thing I loved about Me Too movement is just like gave a voice to people to, to share their narrative, as you mentioned, and how widespread it is. Like women and like NPR, they're talking about it. So it's not only like people who are working at like this very rural areas or very like a specific like communities experiencing those kind of form of aggression, which I think it's aggression. And just all of us are struggling. Yes, yes. It's the widespread nature of it, I think, caught a lot of people off guard. A lot of men maybe off guard. Women may have been like, yeah, we were trying to say this (laughs) for a while. But yeah, (laughs) 
But it is, it can be shocking to see it all come out in this sort of moment that we're having. Yeah. Right. And I think just one thing I'm slightly scared of that, the possible backlash of Me Too movement, that then the same thing with the rape culture you talked about, that people are kind of saying that it's overreaction of a feminist movement, which is, I hope that's not the case. Yeah, I think Rebecca Traster has written some interesting articles and one of her recent pieces is on concerns about what the backlash could look like. It does seem inevitable and she writes an interesting take on that for sure. One of the things that I noticed doing the research for the book was that in all of these domains where there were what could be called feminist interventions, like where where in popular culture or the geek spaces or college campuses where feminists would engage, right, with activism and they would raise awareness and they would bring attention to these issues and call out inadequate responses to complaints and things like that. There was fairly immediately a reaction to those feminist interventions. And one of the things that happened was that the detractors, the people who were opposed to characterizing these cluster of behaviors as rape culture, I think that in some ways they were successful at reframing these issues as overreaching political correctness, as people being snowflakes or people being students being coddled on college campuses or infantilized or consumed with worried about safe spaces and trigger warnings and things like that. So I think culturally there was some success at reframing concerns about rape culture as oversensitivity and feminist overreaction. So I'm I would imagine that we would see this come up again in this instance of Me Too, for sure. Right. And one topic that you talked about that was fascinating in the book, and I know you talked about it briefly right now, is like how we might perceive, react differently to the news of like sexual violence, harassment, when it happens in other cultures and other communities compared to our own. So what do you think about that? Yeah, so early feminist orientation around rape culture, they were very concerned with dismantling patriarchy. So that was seen as a central um, element in dismantling rape culture is to dismantle patriarchy. But over the years, that sort of sense of political goal has been dislodged, I think, from conversations around rape culture. So we, when we talk about it, domestically or in case or celebrity cases more recently, right? There's been more celebrity cases or some of the instances that I talk about in the book, it was very much considered like an individual pathology when we talked about the offenders or the perpetrators, or sometimes they would be considered predators, but it was considered an individual pathology or a problem with teen behavior or a problem with the way that women behave or a problem with these contested notions around sex positivity and slut shaming and empowerment and things like that, sexual agency, right, for women. But when we talk about it in other cultures, there was more of an effort to look at it in terms of the impact of patriarchy or larger social structures around how that could influence sexual violence and sexual misconduct. So I think for domestically, we would see it as an individual problem. And then when, when we found it in other places, we would, we would see it as a structural problem. So yeah, I, I think the media framed it differently in both instances. 
And I'm kind of curious, as far as the advocacy for us to create a meaningful change with policymaking, which framework do you think is going to be more effective? Okay, I'm glad that you asked that question because this is what I think feminists grapple with in dealing with these issues. Because on the one hand, the criminal justice system has been a failure for women or any victims of sexual violence specifically, but certainly historically for women. And probably the criminal justice system is not the best solution to these problems. Many of these behaviors, and what a lot of what I wrote about in the book is not necessarily about rape. It's about the continuum of behaviors, right? Many of which fall on the lower end of the spectrum and, and are non-criminal, nonetheless contribute, right, to the larger rape culture. But the solution, I would say, does not lie with the criminal justice system, the best solution, because I think we need to turn toward more restorative justice practices. The danger is whenever we call out these instances and bring attention to them, that there will be an over-reliance on the criminal justice system to solve this problem. So we immediately rush to tougher incarceration or longer sentences or strengthening the criminal justice response when really the criminal justice system, it's never been the solution to these problems. And it's certainly never been the solution for the marginalized in society. So we might be looking in the wrong direction if we seek an over-reliance on the criminal justice system. I certainly agree with you as someone who's like, I had some experience with rehabilitation psychology and just like, as you're right, I think like our focus needs to be more on the kind of like changing, shifting the conversation and culture and like, and how we perceive this kind of thing. Yes, I think for victims, a lot of what, what I saw in my research, they want, victims want the harm repaired. They want to be heard, um, which is something that has been, withheld from them, right? Being hurt, being able to speak about this without being dismissed out of hand. So they want to be heard. They want accountability. They want the harm restored. They they don't always want incarceration or mandatory minimums or a harsh criminal justice response, but they do want accountability. And I think sometimes that's where we fail. That's where our society fails because we don't, there's not a sense of justice when the only options are the criminal justice system and incarceration or nothing. So everyone loses out when that's the case. We saw this play out, the rhetoric around this play out, around the Stanford sexual assault case that got a lot of media attention, the Brock Turner case. So he um, was convicted and he was sentenced to six months, but he served three months and was released. And this is the case where BuzzFeed published the victim statement, which went viral and got a lot of attention. And the reaction to Turner's three-month sentence was fairly harsh. Like people felt it was really lenient, that he was not punished enough. And so Brock Turner case, that's an example of how we can over-criminalize because California passed a law that included a mandatory minimum for certain for cases of rape involving certain circumstances. And even though there was outrage against the sentence as being too lenient, it ultimately resisted in passage of legislation that is harsher in punishment, which is counter to any criminal justice reform efforts that we would try to make. So it could could be counterproductive. That was the only point I was trying to make with that. But it's so complicated. It's kind of a 
complicated thing that happened, but it is interesting the back and forth rhetoric around that case because the fem- on the one hand, the feminists were like, this is an outrage, this sentence is too lenient. And so the legislation, they passed a harsher law and then the feminists were like, oh yeah, but we don't support mandatory minimums. So this uneasy alliance between feminist activism and a tough on crime law and order approach and victims rights movement can sometimes be problematic because it results in in increased criminal justice intervention. I mean, if that makes any sense, you know what I'm trying to yes. say? Like, No, I, I agree with I, you. And this is very confusing. And again, just because of this kind of the conflict and part of it, people want justice. And the other part is like, as you said, the uh, criminal justice system is not necessarily the solution for solving this problem. Yes, it's tough. And we have to figure out, I think we're in the middle of figuring out what is justice? What, how, how do we address these, like you said, widespread allegations of all kinds of sexual misconduct? We have to we have to find a solution somehow that's better than what we have, which has been inadequate. Right, right, certainly. And I'm just kind of, I personally, I'm at shock and feeling overwhelmed with like this kind of flood of the news around violence against women in media. So what are some of the recent examples of normalization of violence against women that you see these days, specifically in media? Okay, I think I was going to say for this question that this is where we see this sort of paradox, right? Where we're kind of, we're culturally condoning and, and then selectively condemning at the same time. I think because there have been over the past few years, so much criticism around content, around representation and content in popular culture. So television, movies and gaming and and comic books, that there's a real effort to be more sensitive about portrayals of sexual violence. And what I try to do in the book is link that up to how the industries operate. So in the geek spaces, I talk a lot about how the complaints and criticisms of the narratives and content and imagery around sexual violence within the cultural artifact, like the comic books or the video game itself, I tried to connect that to the diversity or lack thereof within the industries in terms of creators and game developers and artists and comic book writers and colorists and people who create the content, right? So what I tried to show was that in these industries where it has been predominantly considered a white male heteronormative space, that over the past few years, that as there's increased diversity, as more People of color become creators and game developers and participants in the creation of the content itself. That has improved what we see on the pages or or on screen or whatever, but it has also resulted in this reaction to those criticisms. So there's some improvement, I think, and I do think that representation matters. I think that having more diverse people as creators makes a difference in these industries, but it's not, I don't think it's the only solution. It doesn't necessarily, it's insufficient, I think is what, what I'm trying to say. It's good. It's, it's necessary, but it's not always enough. Right. So I think that there's more 
sensitivity and awareness about what's being put out there, but there's also resistance to those criticisms. So as more people are vocal about their critique, there's more resistance against that. But hopefully we're, we're improving in that arena. Right. I certainly uh, share that perspective with you. I'm I'm a fan of comic. I always go to and past several years San Diego Comic Con and I see the effort and the different oh, yeah. panels about like wanting to add diversity, diverse voices and not even like call it yes. only ethnically, but like sexual, based on sexual orientation, different things. And you're certainly right. It's a yes. right movement in the right direction, but you're right. It definitely in order for us to address this specific challenge, we certainly need more than that. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of, I think part of the feminist interventions in, for example, like comic culture has been to create the anti-harassment policies at the cons and things like that. So there's a lot of intervention. There, there, There's a lot of movement and yes, resistance, resistance as well, but hopefully um, these things are improving. I'm thinking about with different kind of when we are introducing new concepts, new policy changes, there are, there are always some kind of pushback from people who want things the way it was. Yes. And I'm thinking like right now, obviously, the message that I often see in different, at least kind of news media, different like culture, they want to say we have zero policy for sexual harassment, sexual assault. And then there are obviously some pushback around that. Do you feel around this kind of issues around like, no, like people, what we want to change how things are around rape culture, sexual harassment. Do we get more pushback because of the, the specific topic or it's like similar to rest of the political change? Well, I don't necessarily see it as separate in terms of these broader, in terms of the broader cultural discourse, because what I think happened during the time that I was doing this study, which was just a few years ago, for example, in terms of the video gaming industry, I wrote a fair amount on on Gamergate, which was a sort of organized online campaign, gendered harassment, right? Where people who critiqued content of video games and so forth, particularly around representations of women and objectification and things like that, were subject to just a massive campaign of online rape threats and death threats and, and things like that. What happened was that that I felt like that, although that the mainstream media portrayed Gamergate as a campaign of online harassment that was gendered, the other side, the supporters of Gamergate, really did frame that issue as um, feminist overreaction, as um, overreaching political correctness, and even more broadly. And I think that what they did was they their the way that they engaged in that campaign the the transgressive nature of calling out these women mostly women but it wasn't always women for critiquing the content they were able to reframe the issue in ways that i think resonated more broadly politically later on so some of the things that they were were saying were this these are efforts at censorship this is about free speech this is about democracy itself if we let these feminists overreach this is about social justice warriors trying to control what we see and what we think and even though at first it was sort of constrained to gamergate those same ideas 
were resonant in discussions on campus sexual assault and discussions uh, more more broadly politically later on, like around the campaign, around the Trump Access Hollywood tape when that was released and so forth. So it's these issues about turning it into how social justice warriors are, as in their words, creeping into every area of culture and politics. So I do think that it that it does resonate beyond just just these individual issues to more broader political culture war type issues too. Nikki, I love this discussion, but I've noticed that we are toward the end of our time and I want to make sure that our listeners, they know how to get a hold of you. So I know you have wonderful, like you have several books and you you have different resources. So how, if our listeners want to learn more about these informations and topic, where would be the best place to find them? You can contact me through um, Twitter at Crimcast, C-R-I-M-C-A-S-T. And you can find information about the Center for Crime and Popular Culture at St. Francis College at the website www.sfc.edu slash popculture. And you can find out all about our work at St. Francis. Excellent. I'll make sure I put it in the show notes so people are able to go back and uh, figure like more information and find more information about you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Have a great day. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Nikki Phillips. It was interesting to hear a perspective of criminologists and how our training might impact how we perceive things. Interestingly, as psychologists, I get focused, I focus on things on an individual level and seems like as a criminologist, you see a bigger picture. One thing that's been interesting for me that I learned that Me Too movement started actually by an African-American woman, Trana Burke, in 2007. She is a founder of youth organization Just Be, and she created Me Too movement to reach uh, sexual assault survivors in underprivileged communities. And if you think about it, that she created this campaign, and then 10 years down the line, that turned to a hashtag and how it gave voice to many people in the social media and caused some changes, like Recently, we had the uh, candidate, Roy Moore, that because of the allegation, he was not selected as a senator in uh, Alabama. Anyhow, the reason I'm saying that is sometimes we do this advocacy work. We do some uh, community work and we don't necessarily see the changes immediately. And that can be discouraging. But what I'm trying to say is down the line, you don't know how your effort might help one person or hundreds of women and men, and it can give rise to these wonderful things in future. Anyhow, I hope that this was helpful for you. And as always, I would love to hear your thoughts and feedback on a topic that you want to learn more about. You can email me at drmoali at oasis2care.com or you can use your Twitter or Facebook to contact me. My handle is at oasis2care. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. 
Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.